And now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. Right. Hey, hey, everybody out there. Good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, helping you find the courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today, each and every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and any other time in between. Now, each and every week, these broadcasts focus on the integration of spirituality and our mental health. And these are placed all within the context of our relationships, the relationship that we have with ourselves, the relationships that we have with others, and the relationship with God or the divine. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, just invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. So that's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And if uh, you would like to be part of today's show, I invite you to call in. You can do that. It's toll free. It's 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls at the uh, after the break, about uh, 30 minutes into the show today. So, and just in case you can't stick around for the whole show today, or maybe you want to go back and listen to the other shows that are in the archives, you can go back and um, listen to them. Uh, all you have to do is just go back onto the, the website, and you'll see, you'll scroll down a little bit, and you'll see the previous shows, the dates and the titles for them and everything. And if uh, you do not want to do that, you, um, the shows are also available now for download on Audible and iTunes and Amazon Music. And uh, just want to mention before we get into today's show that uh, if you've thought about subscribing to these broadcasts, uh, just invite you to do so. Um, again, you, these are not required. You don't need a subscription in order to access any of these uh, podcasts. But um, again, it is greatly appreciated. So you may do so just, again, by visiting the website. And I believe it's in the upper left-hand corner. You can click on the subscription link, and it'll, it'll share with you all the information that you need. So certainly no pressure, but uh, certainly grateful for those who uh, provide this. Now, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, again, just want to say welcome. There's always new people turning tuning into the show. <clears throat> and so um, just want to begin by just saying that uh, with all the chaos and the uncertainty and the confusion that's going on these days, uh, this call to live a more authentic life is becoming uh, just increasingly urgent and poignant. In fact, it seems that everywhere we turn, uh, genuineness and authenticity are rare characteristics among people who are searching for, I would call it a tangible substance in relationships. 
Okay? We want to know who we can trust. We want to know who we can be authentic with. And how can we be more authentic with ourselves? Okay? But nowadays, society is, is just constantly conditioning all the generations to question the motives and desires of others really like never before. Um, and for instance, um, you know, just striving for the best polished personal image is at an all-time fever pitch, as it seems that the one reality show after another presents us with anything but reality. You know, and daily we're being sold the message that to be the most socially acceptable persona money can buy. In fact, it seems as though that wherever there is more drama or more tears or more pain or more suffering, the better the front page story. And as we read these articles or as we watch these reality shows, it just seems as though, you know, it, these themes just keep coming up again, like, you know, such as who can outshock who? Who has more drama? Who can provide more tears? Who can generate more chaos? Uh, who can accumulate more toys and points than anybody else? Who has more guile or trickery? And really, who is more cunning, either by hook or by crook? And unfortunately, instead of taking people at face value, so to speak, we're now accustomed to always asking, okay, so what's the catch? What are you not telling us? Well, perhaps as a result of a, a number of humiliating and painful experiences, we tend to avoid any further investing of physical or emotional or even spiritual parts of ourselves in relationships. I mean, furthermore, out of our own brokenness, we may feel that we just cannot risk being a, a victim to yet another example of fraud or trickery and or just flat out dishonesty. Because the past physical and psychological and spiritual wounding has really taken too much out of us and leaving us to believe that others simply conspire to take advantage of our vulnerability. And yet, this, this is the dilemma we face, isn't it? I mean, we, on one hand, we strive for genuineness and authenticity in our relationships, and yet we also realize at some point that, that this demands a level of vulnerability from us. And therefore, I place this integration of spirituality and our mental health in relationships. Because, true, when you think about it, you know, we receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, and even our spiritual wounds in relationships. And yet, we can discover also our greatest healing and our strength and peace and forgiveness and love through healthier relationships. We may not be able to see it right away, but it's there. Okay, so this is the great irony of life. We are, we are social creatures. We are social beings. We live in relationships. We just cannot avoid it. And yet, this is where often our pain comes from. And yet, it's also in the same context where our healing can come from. And these relationships just might be within our own families. It might be among our coworkers. It might be among our friends. But it's interesting that because whenever we start to transform, we start to heal from uh, the wounds that we picked up in previous relationships, we also transform others. 
by just how we are sometimes. We could transform others by our, our presence and our grace and our understanding. But first, forgiveness and kindness and compassion begin with how we treat ourselves. You know, because whenever we are compassionate with ourselves, we find that we can then be more compassionate with others. And when we are forgiving with ourselves, we then discover that we can be more forgiving with others. And when we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves, we then discover how this opens up our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. So transformation, first and foremost, begins with us. And because we're in relationships with others, it just expands out. It just ripples out into any and all relationships that we are in. So, in other words, you know, before we can expect and appreciate authenticity from another, we often first are compelled to confront our own consistencies and our own inauthentic ways. One of my uh, favorite family psychotherapists, Virginia Satir, uh, she lived, uh, she was born in 1916 and, and she died in 1988. Definitely one who was ahead of her time. Um, you know, she was uh, growing up in the Victoria era. And uh, if you know anything about that time period, it's definitely what we would call a man's world. And uh, Virginia came along and turned uh, psychotherapy on its head. Um, and so I always appreciated just her way of being with uh, not just individuals, but also families. And she really brought her work into relationships, and she took it very, very deep. And in fact, she was one of the first psychotherapists to combine Eastern philosophies with uh, Western, uh, shall we say, um, psychology, the psychological concepts. Well, she has a way of summing up this authenticity quite nicely. She says, I want to love you without clutching. I want to appreciate you without judging. I want to join you without invading, invite you without demanding, leave you without guilt, criticize you without blaming, and help you without insulting. And if I can have the same from you, then we can truly meet each other. And I've always appreciated, you know, those words from Virginia Satir. Uh, again, she just had a way of just pulling out of people the very best parts of themselves and just saying, okay, what are we truly talking about here? What does it mean to be vulnerable with each other? What is this cry of the heart that you have? And what are these wounds that are keeping you from being and, and just, you know, uh, living in relationships with really leading, I would say, with the greatest parts of ourselves, simply really who we are, and just letting that shine instead of shirking back and being guarded or defensive and, and so forth. Because, you know, whenever we become aware of our own internal logging to be more authentic in relationships and actually to be truer to ourselves, this will compel us to begin the process of reclaiming who we are, our voice, our uniqueness, our thisness. And in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, Henry Nowen, uh, he writes that people discover that there is tremendous strength 
in healthier relationships. There are people who heal each other's wounds, forgive each other's offenses, share their possessions, foster the spirit of community, and celebrate the gifts they have received, and live in constant anticipation of the full manifestation of God. So, how do we do this? How do we engage in an inner spiritual transformational aspect that is ongoing and more aligned with our authenticity? Well, let's consider this joke. A shoe, a spoon, and a rope walk into a bar and sit down. Now, the bartender, never having seen this before, goes over down at the bar where they are when, you know, with his typical, so what do you have? And the shoe, the spoon, and the rope reply, oh, that's okay. Don't mind us. We're not really here. Well, this joke seems like it makes no sense, you know, from a logical standpoint. But uh, when we understand what's really going on here, it does have something to teach us regarding living in illusions and distortions, as well as living in the fear of not wanting to discover the deeper truth about ourselves. Because you see, cognitive distortions and the anxiety that they produce are simply ways that our minds convince us of something that isn't really true. Um, you know, These inaccurate thoughts are are usually used to reinforce our negative thinking or, or negative emotions and, and telling ourselves that things sound rational and accurate, but really only serve to keep us feeling bad about ourselves and perceiving ourselves as victims. I'll give you a quick example here. Uh, there's one in which um, we often look at ourselves, you know, through like victimization. Okay, and a um, good example of this is let's say you're in one room and you're just minding your own business and there's a lot of other people in just another room adjacent to where you are. And you hear a bunch of laughing, carrying on, some music is playing. It sounds like they're having a good time. Okay, and uh, you can't quite make out what they're talking about, but you just I'm going to go see what's going on here. So you get up and you walk across, you know, the the room and uh, you poke your head in the other room. You walk in like, hey, everybody. And then there's silence. The music stops. The talking stops. The laughing stops and so forth. I mean, just silence. Even the crickets are silent, okay? And you automatically assume that, ooh, they must have been talking about me. What did I do wrong? Why are they picking on me? What did I do to them? You know, and so on and so on. We just, you know, all these misperceptions come from our negative assumptions that, well, if something's wrong, it must be my fault. And again, we just run with those assumptions instead of saying, hey, why'd everybody stop talking? Okay. And, you know, again, we may not even bother to check this out to see if there's any truth to like, well, were you talking about me or, you know, <laughs> or what's really going on here or something? Or like, oh, y'all don't have to be quiet on my account. Go ahead. Go back to what you're doing. I just came over to see, you know, um, how everybody's doing. 
Okay, but uh, you see how these cognitive distortions and the anxiety that it produces, you know, that's just something that in our minds uh, are just simply ways that uh, kind of convince us of something that isn't really true. Again, we, we think, you know, there is some truth to it because everything sounds good in our head. But when it leaves our lips and we say something, when we hear it, we're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that or what was I thinking? I just assumed the worst. Okay, but you know, we tell our thing, we tell ourselves things. I should say that sound rational and accurate, but really, they only serve to keep us feeling bad about ourselves and perceiving ourselves as victims. And this is something that we have to, have to constantly resist. We have to fight about, you know, fight from you know being um, you know victims. All over again, because a lot of people are very good at going into victimization or blaming themselves or taking on too much responsibility or even responsibility that's not theirs. Well, another way to look at it, so to speak, is to understand that everything we see, everything we taste, everything we touch, everything that we hear and everything that we smell, this is all taken in by our senses which in turn are interpreted by our minds that attach meaning and significance to it, but which in turn creates awareness, which then in turn creates memories. Well, here's a good example. Let's say that we, uh, we see a red rose. We pick it up, we hold it, we smell it, and, and by this you know, quick experience, we interpret it as being pleasant or unpleasant. And then our mind logs that experience under our memory so that the next time we see a red rose, we will remember what we have experienced in the past. And the same process goes on when we believe that once something bad has happened to us, well, then it's inevitable that it's going to occur over and over and over again. Okay? Because how many times in our lives do we find ourselves going through some emotional or physical painful experience and we tell ourselves that, well, you ain't seen nothing yet, that this negative experience is just a tip of the iceberg. You know, if you think you're suffering now, just wait. There's more to come. Okay. In in this sense, we're often waiting for, shall we say, the other shoe to drop. You know, it's an expectation of something that is inevitable to occur. And and how we often hold our breath. It's like we don't want to get our hopes up because, well, you know, the other shoe is going to drop here. Okay? And that's actually this, this saying of, you know, the other shoe is going to drop has an interesting history to it. Uh, This expression probably has its origin in the boarding schools or rooming houses of the early 1900s, where uh, residents were crowded into multiple tiny rooms, and the, the, the walls were very thin. Or from, let's say, the multi floor apartment dwellings in cities like Chicago and New York, where one's tenant's bedroom was always directly underneath another. So... When somebody is taking off their shoes or their boots, they tend to drop them on the floor. And when one shoe drops, the other will inevitably follow. 
Okay, now just just try to get that image in your mind. Imagine that the residents in these other rooms uh, hear the shoe drop, and they know exactly what it is. Uh, then they wait or listen for the other shoe to drop. But how is this expression played out in our anxieties and our fears? I mean, do we we feel like uh, another major crisis could occur at any given moment? Uh, we just don't want to get our hopes up too high because, well, we're going to be disappointed that other shoe is just bound to drop. And if we feel like this, you know, we're certainly not alone. And many people that I talk to are anticipating that more trouble is just around the corner. So they're always waiting for this other shoe to drop. And and given the conditions of the nation and the world at this time, it's it's difficult to convince ourselves otherwise. I mean, after all, what else could happen? We're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. But let's just say for the moment that there is no other shoe. What do we do then? Do we simply stop what we're doing and become consumed with the illusion of being victims? Because basically, a victim is, is one who suffers a direct or threatened physical, psychological, spiritual, and emotional harm as a result of an act by somebody else. And this is a simple definition, but you get the point. I mean, yes, we can be a victim of another person's harm done to us. But how many times do we inflict harm on ourselves, reinforcing the illusion that all we are ever going to be is a victim? And this is what exactly it is meant by waiting for the other shoe to drop. To live in fear, or to live wounded, or to live reactive, instead of living in the freedom of knowing who we are as living souls. Well, I was thinking about this concept and uh, flipping channels one night and The Matrix was on. And um, it's like, okay, I have to watch The Matrix again. And uh, one of my favorite scenes is when Neo is taken to go see the Oracle to find out whether or not he is the one whom Morpheus believes he is. And he arrives at the Oracle's apartment, and he's told to take a seat with the other potentials. In other words, the Oracle will be right with you, but just have a seat. And as he is waiting, he notices a little Buddhist boy seemingly bending a spoon with his mind. And the little boy sees Neo trying to figure out how he's doing this. And so he hands him the spoon, and Neo tries and he tries and he tries, but he simply cannot bend the spoon. Finally, Neo gives up and, and, you know, because he has yet to understand the how of this, let alone the why. And this little Buddhist boy tells him that this can be done easily, simply by understanding that it's impossible to bend the spoon. He said, try to understand the truth. There is no spoon. Only then you will find that the spoon does not bend, but it is your mind. In other words, look beyond the literal, ordinary object or situation. And yet how many times we often focus on the problem 
and not the solution. Because when we focus our attention on, let's say, a problem or something that's literal, we only see with a limited perspective. But when we focus on what's beyond the spoon, so to speak, we then tap into our ability to see with our minds the infinite, the formless, and the limitless. Yes, there is a form that we call spoon, but that's not the end-all, be-all of what can be seen or experienced. If you ever watch the movie Patch Adams, a similar scene happens too. Um, I believe the scientist's name is Arthur Mendelssohn, and he's going around and he's holding up four fingers, but he, he goes up to people randomly and just says, well, how many fingers do you see? And when a person just kind of looks at him like, really? What's your problem? You know, I only see four. And Arthur Mendelssohn is just like, four? Is that it? Four? I'm surrounded by just idiots. And one night, Patch Adams uh, just, um, he has to know more. So he, you know, he goes to Arthur Mendelssohn's uh, room and um, he says, what is it? What's the answer? Show me. And, you know, Arthur puts down his pen as he was working on who knows what. But he he has, um, uh, you know, uh, Patch Adams hold up four fingers. And he goes, okay, what do you see? And, of course, Patch, as he's looking at his fingers, say, uh, four? And, and Arthur stops him and he goes, no, 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 no. Look beyond the fingers. Look beyond them. And when he does, and he softens his gaze, and he looks beyond the fingers, he sees eight fingers. Okay? We could, we could you know, spend all night entertaining ourselves with this one, but it is true. When we don't focus on what's right in front of us, if we look beyond it, if we are able to see what is let's say, not there. That's where we're going to find the truth. It's something that uh, I've come to really appreciate in my life, just being able to find God in the ordinariness of life, because I'm convinced that God loves to show up through the most unlikely people, through the most unlikely circumstances, and certainly God's timing. And we miss so much simply because we are looking for God in all the wrong places. Okay? And these lessons you know, are, are certainly true, and they can be applied when we want to see ourselves and others as souls. And yes, um, you know, we have bodies, but this is only the form. You know, just like the spoon, it's only a form. And too often we focus uh, only on wanting to change the form, the external, the temporary. And yet, all the while, this is not the issue. However, if we can see beyond the form and focus on the infinite, the limitless, and the formless, the temporary form or issue transforms. Even in our spirituality, there are forms that we call rituals. 
that we adhere to in a precise manner or a particular order. And we then often miss the flexibility that's needed, you know, to experience what's really important. And uh, another classic example of this teaching is when, you know, in the Bible, when Jesus constantly wanted people to, to uh, not discredit God's laws, but rather see beyond them in order to grasp its transformational spirit. So, Whenever you are tempted to wait for the other shoe to drop, remind yourself there is no shoe and change your assumptions about what you can and cannot do. Change your perspective. Realize your potential. See beyond the spoon. See beyond the shoe and truly see what you have yet to discover about living authentically in relationships. Now, the last part to um, Neo's um, spoon-bending encounter with the little Buddhist boy is that after he, uh, well, after he's been talking to the oracle for some time, he looks up and overhead of her kitchen, um, you know, he reads a sign, and uh, the oracle says, do you know what that means? And, uh, you know, the, the sign reads, uh, Temet Noske, and it's Latin for know thyself. And the key to finding a purpose and fulfillment in life begins with knowing and understanding yourself. We're each born with this knowledge, but finding a purpose and achieving fulfillment requires the sharing of this knowledge. We share the wisdom and we seek the transformation, but it is there. But don't focus on the spoon. Don't focus on the shoe. Well, after the break, I'll share with you another story about how easy it is for us to believe that we are limited or restricted by what we think we see and hear. So I would really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So again, if you would like to call in, the number is toll-free, 888-627-6008, and I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Okay, welcome back. I'm Dr. James Hawkins. You are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about the limits of living in illusions. And I started off by telling this joke. Uh, a shoe, a spoon, and a rope 
walk into a bar and sit down. And the bartender, never having seen this before, goes down there with the typical, so what do you have? And the shoe, the spoon, and the rope all reply, oh, don't mind us. We're not really here. Now, this joke, you know, as I said before, seems like it makes no sense. I mean, like, what, what's going on here? You know, for, especially from a logical standpoint. But it really does have something to teach us regarding living in illusions and distortions, as well as living in the fear of not wanting to discover the deeper truth about ourselves. And I uh, started to talk a little bit about the cognitive distortions and the anxiety that's produced from them, because, um, you know, whenever we engage in this behavior, and trust me, we have all have our cognitive distortions. You know, these are things that our minds, you know, convince us that, uh, you know, something, you know, it sounds good, but it isn't really true. You know, and these inaccurate thoughts are usually uh, used to reinforce negative thinking or our negative emotions, you know, telling ourselves, well, it sounds pretty good and this is probably accurate, but in reality, it only really serves to keep us feeling bad about ourselves and perceiving ourselves as victims. And the the same process goes on, let's say, for an example, when we believe that once something bad has happened to us, that it's inevitable that it's going to occur over and over and over and over again. Because how many times in our lives do we find ourselves going through, you know, a, a painful experience, whether it's emotional or psychological, physical, even spiritual painful experiences, and we tell ourselves that we deserve it. We tell ourselves that, uh, oh, well, I must have brought this on myself. Or we tell ourselves that, uh, oh my gosh, this is, this is just a beginning, this is going to go on and on and on. Every time I visit this person, every time I go here, every time, you know. And in a sense, what we're doing is that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, this expectation of something that's just inevitable to occur. And now we really have to hold our breath. And, okay, it's true. We, you know, can be the victim of, you know, another's harm done to us. But how many times do we inflict harm on ourselves? I mean, how many times do we reinforce this illusion that, you know, all we are ever going to be is a victim? That we don't deserve any happiness in our lives or that we're worthless and unlovable. And every time it happens, we just go, see? See, there it is again. See, I told you, I told you, there it is again. See, and just how that just reinforces these negative messages over and over again. And this is exactly what waiting for the other shoe to drop means. To live in this fear or to live wounded and, and to be a victim. And we tend to be reactive instead of living in the freedom of knowing of who we are as souls. Well, now we've come to the last object in this joke. That is the rope. And let's see if we can truly experience the freedom that's contained within. 
And there's a kind of a cute story. I had shared this a few months back and um, got uh, some good responses from it and because of its just depth of the teaching as well as, um, again, it ties in nicely with, uh, you know, truth isn't always what we see. Okay? It's called The Donkey and the Washerman. And one day... Uh, when he was collecting the laundry in his village, um, he was one who would take it down to the river to wash them, and that's how he earned his living. So he just was always referred to as a washerman. And, um, you know, he would do this every day. He'd take a day off, you know, once a week. But uh, sure enough, he'd go around and just, okay, who has washed today? And I'll, I'll be back later tonight with it. And um, he, you know, makes his rounds one morning, and he collects all the laundry that he has to do for that day. And uh, he gets down to the river, and that's when he realized he had forgotten to bring the rope to which he would tie the donkey to a tree so that it wouldn't run off while he was washing the laundry. And he just, he was so beside himself because... You know, he just stood there and he just like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to lose a whole day's wage if I have to go back home and get this rope. And he just stood there just frozen. He didn't know what to do. And as he was standing there just contemplating, you know, this dilemma, uh, a man walked by and asked him if he was okay. You know, was, was everything all right, sir? And the washerman explained this situation to the man and, uh, you know, about forgetting his rope so that he couldn't tie his donkey. Then as we would go back home, he would be so far behind, he would miss a whole day's wage and so forth. And uh, the, the other man who was listening to this, you know, just smiled and said, oh, sir, you have nothing to worry about. I have an idea. You don't need the rope. Just pretend to tie the donkey. To this tree. Okay, wait a minute. What do you mean, just pretend? That's what I said. Just pretend to go through the motions of tying your donkey to the tree. Only make sure he sees you do this. Well, just as ridiculous as it sounded, the washerman did just that. He pretended to tie his donkey to the tree, and he made sure that the donkey was watching him. Then he took his laundry down to the river and he began to wash it. And every now and then the washerman would look back at the tree just to see what the donkey was doing. And the donkey was still there. It was eating grass and acting as if it is tied to this tree. The donkey was perfectly content. Well, when the washerman finished his laundry for the day and everything was dry and folded and he loaded up his donkey and then he gave the command for the donkey to move. But the donkey didn't move. It acted as if it had been tied to the tree all along. And now the washerman thought he was really in a bind because he can't get this donkey to move. How am I going to return laundry to the people? They're not going to want to pay me. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's going to be dark soon, so on and so on. So he leaves the donkey where it is, and he runs and he finds you know, the man who told him to pretend tying the donkey to the tree in the first place. 
Well, he searched and eventually found this man and explained the situation now to him that the donkey now refuses to move because it still thinks it's tied to the tree. And the man listened and he said, sir, nothing to worry about. This is easy. You can you can fix this easily. Okay. And uh, he told him, like, just as you pretended to tie the donkey to the tree, now you need to pretend to untie this donkey from the tree. Only make sure the donkey watches you do this. Well, again, the washerman, like, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll do this. I don't know. So the washerman goes back to the donkey and he starts to pretend that he is untying this donkey and he made sure the donkey was watching him. Then with a stern voice, he commanded the donkey to move and he and the donkey started to walk back home. Now, again, on the surface, we might think to ourselves that, you know, the donkey in this story is just plain stupid, you know, being tricked into thinking it was tied when actually it was not. I mean, after all, the only thing that the washerman did was simply go through the motions of tying and untying his donkey, which actually worked. And my friends in India told me this story, and uh, we had a great laugh about it uh, after I realized (laughs) the true meaning of it, and uh, it was powerful indeed. And uh, they tell me that, uh, you know, how they often use this story to demonstrate how the Vedanta scriptures say that this story exemplifies, yeah, exemplifies, there we go, classic human behavior. You know, they say, on one hand, we think that we are the body. We think that we are the mind. We think that we are the intellect. And all these things need to be nurtured. Or uh, it is our duty to provide, you know, the desire and pampering of these things. And we work jobs, you know, we work day and night to meet these needs, to feed the body, to rest it, and so on and so forth. And uh, quite often we run after various temptations, thinking that those uh, desires will meet our limitless needs. And... It's just the opposite. You know, it is it is an illusion. Because just like in the story, the donkey believed he was tied to the tree, we too believe that we are limited. We too believe that we can't go anywhere. We too believe that this is all there is to us. Okay? And this illusion is what can often be referred to as the ifs, that enslaved me. And this was something that um, Henry Nouwen, again, wrote about in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And uh, he wrote, as long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? I mean, do you really love me? I give all my power to the voices of the world, and I put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you, if you are good-looking and intelligent and wealthy. And I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. And I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. You see, there are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. 
These ifs enslave me since it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. And the world's love is and always will be conditional. And as long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions, because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. See, like the donkey in the story, humanity just doesn't understand its, its own inner freedom. In other words, humanity doesn't know that we're not the body, the mind, the intellect. In other words, that's the form. Like I said, we have a body. That's the form. But there is so much more to us that we don't see. But can we look beyond that in order to see it, to find it? And we are independent. There are no restrictions on us. You know, no bondages. So even so, if this body dies, our soul is eternal. The soul will not die. And the, again, my India friends tell you that the Vedanta, their scriptures, uh, tell humanity that the body and the soul are not one. They are different. And yet, we're so limited in our understanding that we are bound by what we see and feel and hear and taste and touch that we think that's all there is. Okay. Well, we're just, uh, again, day in and day out. You know, we, we, like the donkey, end up believing the illusion that, well, we are limited. We're restricted simply because we were told by another that we are or shown. Unfortunately, we, we take that on as our identity and we act accordingly, believing that this is good as it's going to get. And I, I see this quite a bit in counseling people who identify themselves with their problems or their illnesses. Um, you know, they're, they're not aware of being more than, than what they have become so far in life. So they often accept a, a distorted template that has been laid over top of their lives. And as a result, people tend to beat themselves up for making the same mistakes over and over again in the choices, the relationships, and the unhealthy patterns in their life. Yet, in this story, the donkey that is free all the time thinks that he's tied. And similarly, on a, let's say, a metaphysical level, we, who are souls, believed we are tied to the body. Our soul is captive, and that it seems to be the concrete truth. But at a physical level, we are bound to an endless desire to acquire things. And these things could be beauty and spiritual experiences or knowledge or wealth or fame or success, as well as finding enjoyment of those acquired objects and uh, avoid the negative things in our lives, such as bad relationships and financial problems and so forth. And as a result, we believe that we have to find the key to this prison that we're in. And that key, so to speak, could be in the form of money or freedom or passion or true love or, or any other desire. But what if there is no other shoe to drop? What if there is no spoon? What if we are already free? What if there's no rope, no tree? 
what if the illusion of being in, in an inner prison is nothing more than an illusion? Now, I don't want to come across as one who minimizes another person's pain or problems and struggles, but just think about how you and I might be empowered if we saw ourselves as the solutions to our problems by removing the layers of conditioning, you know, the, like, the cognitive distortions again, or the imaginary ropes that keep us tied to our problems. I mean, what keeps us bound to toxic relationships? What keeps us thinking that there is nothing more to us because we've been told this about ourselves all of our lives? And maybe by looking at ourselves more closely, examining our motives and assumptions and limited perspectives, we just might realize the first step towards lasting transformation is to acknowledge the illusion of oppression is all in our minds. In other words, we might be in a physical prison, but if we find our true nature that we are eternal souls, then no amount of earthly limitation can convince us that we are limited, inadequate, or restricted. And again, my India friends and I, you know, we've uh, I've, I've talked much, much, much about this, and, and uh, they say that we understand that uh, people are already in a relationship with all things and all people, including God, but they just don't know it yet. You know, therefore, it's a matter of realizing that we are souls that are vast and formless. In fact, I've, uh, like I said, I've talked with my friends in India, and we have interesting conversations about sin and ignorance and so forth. And whereas others see sin as people that, you know, they're, they're bad or they're evil, uh, they believe that people act out of ignorance of who they are. And therefore, they commit evil acts because they themselves have not realized themselves and others as souls. Okay, let's, let's think about this yet another way here. What if we know already? I mean, we, we know that we know that we know. What if we know already that we have the love of God from the beginning? Would we still act like we have to earn it? Would we still act like, you know, we're not worthy of it? Or that maybe God made a mistake? Or would we, would, would we be able to rest in that love and live in the freedom and peace to live this out in the context of our relationships? How different would our lives look? Now, in Western spirituality, um, or I should say Western theology, the concept of sin tells people that they, you know, that, that they are wrong, or you've done something wrong, and therefore you need to eliminate the sin in order to be in a right relationship with God and others. And now, you know, for us, regardless of religion, it's, it's a matter of understanding how we live our lives with these superimposed notions or distorted templates, that all we are are just bodies and minds, that we live in this bondage, that we are limited, that we just not going to amount to anything, that healing is beyond us, and so on and so forth. And yes, we have bodies and minds, but you know, we believe this is all there is to us, and that someday, maybe, maybe, we'll get to go to heaven. 
and I've I've seen this in Christianity that uh, people are afraid to walk in the newness of life, so to speak, because they still believe they're tied to the tree. You know, I I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm in a right relationship with God, but I don't know. I want to be sure. I really want to be sure. I mean, you know, does God really understand who I am? Does God really see me? And, of course, but we fail to see ourselves the way God sees us. And therefore, we, again, pick up the proverbial rope and we lash ourselves to the tree and thinking, can't live this out can't walk it out. I need to stay right here, bound to this illusion that I am all I'm ever going to be right now. I mean, didn't Jesus even once say that the kingdom of God is in you? We just haven't realized it yet. And maybe, maybe we just don't know how to embrace it, let alone walk in the newness of that life and relationships. But what a difference it would make in our lives and the lives of humanity in general if we see the illusion for what it is and that we untie the limitations of this donkey mind and we dissolve the ignorance of who we are and we walk in the freedom that has always been within us. I mean, on this level, there are illusions that have been superimposed that we all are this particular body. And, you know, with a set of feelings and thoughts and taking in the external world around us. Okay? But in music recordings, recordings, I should say, this is called overdubbing, which is also known as layering, which is a technique used in which audio tracks that have been pre-recorded and then they're played back and incorporated into another track. So when we believe that there is nothing more to us than a body or a mind or we're limited in some way and so forth, or we define ourselves according to our wounds and scars and experiences, we are actually reinforcing this template or this superimposition of this illusion. Now, removing the illusions and realizing the underlying reality is called superimposition okay and um, I'll have to share with you next time but I'll, I'll get into it a little bit here in this the end of this show that uh, one of my favorite stories is looking for the butter in every bowl of milk and uh, seems like a strange title for a story but when you think about it next time you go to the grocery store do this I guarantee people will just kind of look at you like what okay but there's a deep lesson behind this Okay, so when you go to the grocery store, most people have on their list to buy things like milk and butter and cheese. Okay, and of course, there's other dairy products such as yogurt and cottage cheese and so forth. But have you ever stopped to take a closer look at a glass of milk? Well, as you're looking at that glass of milk, are you able to see the butter and the cheese that's already in there? Okay, it's true, butter and cheese do exist in milk, but where is it? It can't be perceived, it can't be seen you know, with just the naked eye, but it's present everywhere in milk. The potential to be turned into butter and cheese in each and every drop of milk. And there is no particle of milk where butter or ghee is not present. And, and this is the great analogy for how we're able to see God and the potential in ourselves and others in everyday 
life. Well, little did I realize that after hearing this story for the first time, just how important it is to understand that the presence of God or the divine can be seen in everyone, especially in ourselves, in everyday life. But as I said earlier, we get caught up in the externals. We get caught up on the, in the temporal. We get caught up in what we see or hear or touch or taste or smell, and that's all there is ever going to be. And on the surface, we might find this teaching difficult because when we look at ourselves or when we look at others, all we see is just so much physical pain or so many emotional wounds or psychological suffering or expressions of anger and violence or lust or jealousy or brokenness, etc. But can we also see the potential for God's presence to transform these wounds into a life-giving means of creating the healing we truly want to see in this world. In other words, can we see the potential for the milk to be transformed into butter? Well, I'm Dr. James Hauken. You've been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you to tune in uh, next Friday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Pacific, uh, I'm sorry, noon Pacific Standard Time, for um, another hour that we could share together. Uh, leave me your thoughts uh, today about uh, this message, and I'll be glad to read them and respond to them. But until we sit down and talk with one another again next week, uh, everybody be safe, behave yourselves, and may God hold us in the palm of God's hands. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.